Ontology, the Waystation of Red-Pilled Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Ginny, Arya and Guy All Bots The Reshaping of the World Order After the First World War Part 1 I would treat World War I as the watershed. To European readers, that is a familiar concept. To them, it goes without saying that the First World War, not the Second World War, marked the turning point of civilization from prosperity to decline. To Chinese readers, at least those who have received modern Chinese education, this idea may be relatively unfamiliar since World War I's direct impact seems not as significant as that of World War II. But because the dynamic center of the world is in Europe, and the source of evolution of the world system is also in Europe, if we want to have a more holistic vision, we must pay attention to World War I. The First World War was a turning point, which separated the long 19th century from the short 20th century. I have to explain a bit this division. What is the long 19th century? It was the period from the end of the Napoleonic Wars to the First World War. Some people call it the British-dominated century, or the century of liberalism, or the century of capitalism, or the century of colonialism. In fact, these terms are inherently related. The Napoleonic Wars were the last battle between the evolution models among European countries. The constitutional system and the capitalist system represented by Britain won the final victory. Before this, the France of Louis XIV, the France of the French Revolution, and Napoleon himself represented attempts to reject this model. They believe that the absolutist monarchy, or the democratic system of the people, or the resurrection of ancient Rome represented by military glory of Napoleon, were alternatives for human history. But after Napoleon's final defeat, with France itself gradually moving towards the British parliamentary and capitalist model, challengers ceased to exist, and the British model became the world's only prominent selection. Throughout the 19th century up to the start of World War I, basically all countries were imitating the British parliamentary model and capitalist system, which had gradually become the only rational model in Europe and meanwhile spread to the rest of the world. The process of its spreading is usually called colonialism. As Chinese often view this issue from an emotional point of view and consider colonialism as humiliating, it is not easy for them to have an objective understanding of this phenomenon. But from the holistic perspective of the world civilization, it is fair to say that in the vast continents of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, where there was neither parliamentary system nor capitalist system, colonialism was the most common, even if not the best way, but the most common and most frequent way to quickly introduce the European model. In the 19th century, it was undoubtedly the mainstream approach. The transcontinental expansion of the parliamentary system and capitalism originated in Europe are basically isomorphic with global colonialism. This isomorphism was not a process of natural selection. When before the Napoleonic Wars Britain and France were still striving for hegemony and international coordination within Europe not well managed, colonial expansion beyond the border of Europe could not be effectively realized. For example, 
People like Alain Perfit have a view that is now common sense in Europe, that is, the reason why the Opium War happened in 1840 was not accidental, but because of the Napoleonic Wars. If it weren't for Napoleon, the war might have exploded 20 years before. The Anglo-French War constrained the eastward expansion of Britain and entangled the forces of Britain and France in Europe, hence the Qing Empire was spared of India's doom for the time being. If the Napoleonic Wars had been prolonged a bit further, the Opium Wars might have been delayed again. This is an expression of the close correlation between colonialism and European internal dynamics. The Vienna Conference ended the chaos caused by the Napoleonic Wars and reached a state of what can be called international coordination within Europe. In this state of international coordination, most international disputes could be resolved through internal mediation among those European powers. Even if a dispute did occur, a war broke out, the conflict was limited and disciplined. In our word, this kind of war was fair play, small-scale, gentleman's war. It had to respect the basic principles of humanity and civilization, causing little damage to the society, with generally no disruption of the development of capitalism. Under the constraints of this effective international framework, conflicts within European countries were of low intensity, European countries' external expansion was vigorous, and capitalism expanded rapidly throughout the world. This is the long 19th century, or the century of the bourgeoisie, or the century dominated by Britain. The First World War disrupted the status quo and led to the collapse of international coordination as the prerequisite for peaceful development and evolvement. The evolution of capitalism and political struggles between countries no longer took the form of civilized and fair play. The first result of World War I was the birth of Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was completely different from other former political powers. It categorically refused to accept the international order itself, openly defined itself as a challenger and sabotager of the existing international order, and tore up all previous international treaties. It also declared that the mission of the Soviet Union was to overthrow the existing international treaties and orders established by the bourgeoisie. Leon Trotsky as the first people's commissar for diplomacy declared, that his mandate was to launch a world revolution before disbanding the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The Soviet Union was an unprecedented revolutionary regime. If you compare it with the Revolution of 1911, also known as the Chinese Revolution or the Xinhai Revolution, which ended China's last imperial dynasty, the Qing Dynasty, you can see that the foremost principle of the Revolution of 1911 was to recognize all the treaties signed between the Qing Empire and the Western powers and to safeguard the Far Eastern international system. Therefore, the Revolution of 1911 was, according to our textbooks, a bourgeois revolution, which respected the rules of the bourgeois civilization, the limited fair play war and the original international system. Whereas the October Revolution was the first radical revolution based on the principle of overthrowing the international order. It was rather similar to the current Islamic State, not like a normal independent country or civilization. Due to the birth of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the anti-Soviet force quickly emerged. The USSR adopted what we now call unrestricted warfare to oppose the international order. As a result, the right-wing forces in Europe, 
such as the German Army Corps or Katputsch, also resorted to the means of unrestricted warfare to counter the Soviet Union. In other words, if you are without scruples I shall also be ruthless. Only after Leninism came fascism, after fascism, Nazism, after Nazism and Soviet operations in the Third World, came Islamic extremism and then the Chinese Revolution. That's how the history unfolded. The common feature of these practices is the destruction of fair play. When everyone observed the rule of fair play, I didn't have any chance. Only after I broke the rules first did I gain the upper hand by being the first to use more brutal means. But when one has taken the first step, others will take the second and go further in cruelty. As a result, the hallmark of the 20th century was that the rules of the game deteriorated drastically, and the world became much more barbaric. The wars of the 19th century were gentlemen's wars. The Napoleonic Wars, the Franco-Prussian Wars, or the Crimean Wars were all civilized and polite. The prisoners had to be treated with humanity, the army should not harm civilians and only a few armies slaughtered each other. Whereas warfare of the 20th century, as represented by wars launched by the USSR and Germany, were extremely brutal ones that undermine international norms. Genocide and mass extermination of civilians were carried out often. These behaviors were absolutely unthinkable in the 19th century. This is the distinction between the short 20th century and the long 19th century. The key was the outbreak of World War I and the power struggle between the Soviet Union and the anti-Soviet forces that resulted from World War I. In the course of this game, human civilization was arguably on the brink of complete annihilation many times. The end of the Cold War in 1989 ended the short 20th century. The period from 1918 to 1989, usually referred to as the short 20th century in the West, was an extremely dangerous window of human history. It is fair to say that from the tribal era to the present, the period when humans were most likely to be extinct or completely degenerate into barbarians was this short 20th century. This short 20th century began with the birth of the USSR and collapsed with the collapse of the Soviet Union, but many problems remained. For example, Russia and Ukraine, China's Diaoyu Islands, South China Sea, and Taiwan issues are actually negative legacies left to the 21st century by the short-lived 20th century. These legacies are heavy baggage for the 21st century, that is, huge burdens on the new international system established after the end of the Cold War. Without these burdens, it would be easier to establish the new world order after the end of the Cold War on the basis of a more civilized norm like the 19th century. The establishment of an international system is a crucial matter that Chinese readers often underestimate. If you are a graduate of Chinese history, you will get the wrong impression that the birth and development of a country and the people's well-being are mainly dependent on internal policies. This is obviously a viewpoint propagated by the rise of the great powers and similar TV series by the Chinese authorities. These propaganda products argue that the British or the French adopted certain policies or set up institutes that resulted in their empowerment or the Spanish or others' wrong policies that led to their weakening. The most classic argument is the contrast between China and Japan. 
It is propagated that thanks to Japan's Meiji Restoration and Qin Dynasty's refusal to reform, Japan rose and China declined. But this is only part of the story, and a less important part at that, because a country's domestic policies and systems are heavily affected by the international system. European countries are well aware of this. The interaction between their internal constitution and the international system is inseparable. The key to the ebb and flow of the fate of the Qing dynasty and Japan was that Japan was keen on joining the international system from the beginning to become a top student in the system, while the Qing clung to its own concept of the world state. It insisted that the dynasty by itself was an international system, and the Qing dynasty is the co master of the world, and it was very reluctant to participate in the international system dominated by the Western powers. Although in the era of Li Hongzhong, the Qing dynasty had a greater chance than Japan of joining the international system with Britain at its core. In fact, the British repeatedly extended invitations for it to do so, the Qing dynasty refused again and again. The Japanese, even though not taken seriously by the British, couldn't wait to join the international system. Eventually, with the conclusion of the Sino Japanese War and the Russo Japanese War, Japan secured its status in the international system by joining the eight power Allied forces in 1900 and was finally accepted into the international system. Inoculated with false nationalistic doctrine, Chinese people often view this incident as an imperialistic humiliation. In fact, from the perspective of Japan, its behavior was of the same nature as China's participation in the UN peacekeeping force in Liberia. You used to be a less important country, and you were not invited to participate in international affairs. Now your status is elevated, you are considered as a civilized people, so you are invited for peacekeeping missions in barbaric Somalia or other places. For Japan, the Eight Power Allied Forces was the current so called multinational intervention force, which were dispatched to the barbaric areas where the Boxer Rebellion occurred to maintain international order. This was the glory of Japan. It proved that Japan had passed the test and had become a part of civilized people from then on. Since Japan joined the international system and the Meiji Restoration was able to be implemented smoothly, The Qing dynasty refused to join the international system, hence, encountered setbacks and disadvantages at every turn. Only a small percentage of a person's social status is decided by his own practice and efforts. A large part is shaped by the people around him. For example, if you are sitting in a train, even if you don't make any effort, you can still move fast. If you run on your own feet on the ground, even if you try very hard, You still won't outrun the person in the train. The Western centric international system is such a fast train. Even if you are not very capable, it is easy for you to achieve your goals because you take this free ride. It is difficult for you to go anywhere if you don't take this free ride. After the Cold War, history repeated itself. Although Japan was a defeated country, it once again joined the international system with the United States at its core. While China joined the Soviet led Challenger camp through the Civil War in 1948. Deja vu. Again, Japan took the train and China ran on foot. This situation determined many of China's subsequent internal policies. It was never a purely domestic game. Both the domestic and the international variables have to be taken into the equation.
Few Chinese look at the world through the perspective of the international system. The international system is as important to a country as the ecological environment is to living organisms. From the perspective of Darwinian evolutionism, what is adaptation and what is maladaptation is not determined by the creature itself. A whale can be regarded as adaptive in the water because its streamlined body is adaptable in the sea. If it lived on land, it was not adaptive. If the whales are considered adaptive, it is because the marine environment in which they dwell is taken into consideration. Therefore, if the Japanese system is considered superior or that Meiji Restoration correct, it can only be understood by looking at the international system and capitalist environment in which it took place. When the international system, international coordinationism, and capitalism were the fundamental rules of the game, the Japanese system was adaptive, but the Chinese system was not. However, China itself is also adaptable. If you place it among the Soviet-led camp of challengers, in fact, it is also adaptive. Just as the Taliban burned the Buddha of Bamyan, it was adapted to the living conditions of Islamic extremism. Although it was not adaptive to the rest of the world, the Red Guards smashed the Confucian Temple, which was also adapted to the micro-ecological environment of the various factions of the Red Guards. Although it was not adapted to the international environment, only when you understand these things can you understand the true motives of various actors in history. Well, so much for the opening remarks. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative.